Hey folks, before we jump into this episode, we wanted to remind you about our Facebook live stream that we have coming up this Saturday on April 18th. This will be happening at 1 p.m. Central, and it will be a talk by Kimball Cornu on the Christian art of dying in the time of pandemic. You can find a link to our Facebook page in the show notes, and we'd look forward to seeing you there. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a conversation with Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts on worship in the time of the pandemic. They'll be discussing drive-in worship services, the Lord's Supper being taken at home, how pastors can minister to their congregations during this time, and much more. Do be sure to check out those links in the show notes as we have some articles about the COVID-19 pandemic that we think you'll find very helpful, as well as a link to our YouTube channel where you can subscribe to receive weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. We really want to thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing worship in the time of pandemic. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is handling the recording, and he'll edit this together and make it available uh, to you, our listening audience. Uh, we're taking a couple of weeks break from our usual Bible-focused podcast. We've finished a series on the uh, genealogies of the Bible last week, and uh, we're looking forward to a series on the book of Acts that will begin in a couple of weeks. Uh, but given the, the current situation worldwide with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we thought it would be good to address a, uh, a, couple of, a number of issues over the next couple of weeks in our podcasts, issues where we have some kind of insight or a certain amount of expertise. None of us has any expertise in epidemiology or statistics. We have different opinions about how best to handle this as, as a policy matter, uh, and uh, that would be of interest to discuss. But uh, we think that given what Theopolis is focused on and what we do, there are certain kinds of issues that we can uh, can best address and have some some helpful things to say, we, we, we hope. Before I, before I discuss, describe what we're going to do in this, uh, in this initial podcast on this topic, I, wanted, I did want to say that uh, we are in prayer. All of us are in prayer here at Theopolis. I'm sure that you're in prayer in your churches for neighborhoods and counties and states and countries, nations throughout the world, people who are suffering from the virus uh, directly, people who are suffering because they've lost loved ones, people are suffering because of the effects of the, de- uh, of the uh, shutdowns and the economic effects of that. And uh, we're keeping uh, all those things in prayer. And we encourage those of you who are listening to uh, redouble your prayers uh, during this time. This is the this is a time to appeal to the Lord. He alone can turn back this evil, and uh, we we're, we're in His hands. We're always in His hands, but in a time like this, uh, we we should recognize that even more and humble ourselves before Him. So, we encourage you to do that. The first uh, podcast that we want to devote to this topic, uh, we want to focus on a couple of aspects of church life. And there have been a lot of questions that have been raised over the last few months as uh, shutdown orders have gone into effect in various places throughout the world. 
Uh, most of the United States is in some kind of shutdown order. In Great Britain, where James and Alistair are, they're under a lockdown. Uh, and churches generally are not meeting, and their churches are instead having some kind of contact, some kind of liturgical contact through various kinds of electronic means, some kind of virtual contact on Sunday mornings. That's been the norm around the United States. Uh, there's some places where gatherings of larger than more than 10 people are still allowed, but uh, in many places that's not the case. So we want to think through how to, how to think about that and whether what the best policies are, what the best uh, bus options are for churches, uh, for liturgy and worship generally. Uh, more particularly, there's been a lot of discussion online in various venues about the legitimacy of having communion that's a virtual gathering uh, that would have some kind of uh, central location where maybe the pastor and the elders would be uh, doing the basic rite of communion and then the rest of the congregation would be gathering virtually through some kind of electronic, sometime electronic connection and having communion in their homes. Uh, what do we, what should we think about that? Is that, uh, is that something that churches should uh, accommodate to given this, uh, given the circumstances? There are churches that have gone to a kind of drive, drive up, drive through parking lot kind of service where people are still gathering, but remaining in their cars and are but able to see one another uh, and be in uh, at least uh, some some physical proximity, but safely. Uh, what what should we think about that kind of that kind of gathering? Um, and before we start discussing these issues, we're all in agreement that uh, these are uh, extraordinary times and extraordinary decisions that are being made uh, by churches all over the world. And uh, we're not trying to uh, cast any kind of doubt on the decisions of uh, your local leaders, your local pastors. Not trying to trying to criticize or attack any of you who are listening who are pastors who have made those tough decisions. Uh, but we wanted to offer our own uh, thoughts and our own uh, way of approaching these kinds of questions for uh, uh, for your consideration. Uh, but we, we want to do it without demonizing or attacking anybody for decisions that you've had to make, uh, again, in these extraordinary times. So uh, the other issue that we wanted to, to, to kind of bundle into this is the question of pastoral care. The liturgy is the central gathering point for the church. Within that, the pastor has a unique role uh, as a liturgical leader, a liturgical minister of word and sacrament. And of course, the pastor is also the the hub of pastoral care. He's certainly not the only one who's carrying out pastoral care. We're supposed to be caring for one another. There's body life and mutual mutual assistant and mutual mutual care that goes on and should go on. But we want to think about uh, and and talk about how pastors should address this situation when uh, you're not able to have the weekly contact that you have with your congregations at, at church. Uh, and it's even difficult in some uh, locales to have physical contact with the congregation at all. How do you continue to care for your churches in those kind of circumstances? So that's a, that's a cluster of issues we want to try to address uh, on this first podcast devoted to the, to the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe I could just kick us off with a, a quick um, generic thought about the idea of observing communion in a sort of virtual sense. Um, one of the things I found interesting about the issue is how certain convictions, which we would probably share here, might push us in opposite directions at, at the same time. A believer, for instance, might take the view, well, communion is basically a mental 
activity. It's something I, I do with my mind. It's about remembering Jesus, and I don't need bread and wine to do that. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's no big issue whether or not I, I try and observe communion at home. Now, I wouldn't personally um, take that view. Um, I think the physical aspect of eating bread and, and drinking wine is significant. I mean, Jesus' command, in fact, this doing remembrance of me, the, the imperative isn't remember, it, it's do. And so I, I don't think that we can sort of uh, change that just to a mental activity without losing something of what Jesus has said. So, you know, personally, I, I would say the physicality of taking bread and wine matters. Um, and so I might try to do that at home. But of course, at the, at the same time, if you take the physical aspect of a communion time seriously, that might push you in a, in a different direction because you would say, well, P Paul's command for us as a church to gather um, is physically important and it, it can't take place in this sort of non-physical sense. So that that's one of the sort of dynamics that, that I find quite interesting when thinking over the issue. Yeah, and I think one of the dilemmas that pastors and churches are facing uh, is, uh, again, a, a dilemma that comes out of certain convictions about the Lord's Supper. Uh, if you believe that this truly is communion in the body and blood of Christ, as we do, and if you believe that this communion in the body and blood of Christ is uh, in a sacrament of solidarity for the church, uh, uh, it would seem that this, in this time above all others, we would need that kind of solidarity when we're living in uh, apart from each other in isolation, then it's all the more imperative that we have those kinds of moments of solidarity with Jesus Christ, our Lord and with one another. So there's a, there's an, an element, there's a, there's a drive from, from the, from the perspective of pastoral need. We need to, we need to do this. Uh, but the same, again, the same kind of considerations as you were saying, James, it's the same kind of considerations would lead you to be hesitant uh, at best about having any kind of Eucharistic service that doesn't involve a physical gathering, precisely because it's a sacrament of solidarity. It's odd to do it when we when you aren't physically present to one another. So you have a single principle in a sense that you want this solidarity that the sacrament signifies and seals. You want that in this time of uncertainty and trouble. But at the same time, that same principle drives you to say, well, we can't do that virtually. We need to we need to assemble, as Paul says. We need to gather. When, when you come together, that's when you do the Lord's Supper. It's probably important to distinguish at the very outset the sort of questions that we're addressing here from the questions that might be raised in a situation that's more normal, where people would say, can't we have drive-in church or can't we just have online church? Um, it's a very different sort of thing where the situation is one of rejecting a positive good for the life of the church and the pursuit of that to thinking about a situation where in an extreme situation um, what is permissible, what still counts as a meeting of the church for instance or what still counts as communion. Those questions are different and so we shouldn't think that if we're justifying one particular sort of practice under extreme circumstances, that that is the same thing as justifying that under ordinary circum circumstances, where such a practice would be uh, shrinking back from full entering into the life and um, communion of the church. And then there's also the issue of how exactly does 
what exactly is um, the supper in its character. So, for instance, the Corinthians can eat a meal and be told that it's not the supper that they're celebrating because they're not recognizing each other at that supper. And some are eating ahead of others, others are getting drunk and others are going without. And so even though it would seem that they are celebrating the supper, they're not. Likewise, in the Old Testament, with some of the teaching concerning sacrifice and the sacrifice being rejected because it's not being confirmed in practice, in a situation where we are very much recognizing the body of Christ and there's a sense of a hunger for communion with one another, a sense of being together, of uniting with each other in this difficult time, and yet still finding ourselves held back from being physically together and sharing the same um, physical bread and wine and having to use our own, perhaps. Um, what is the difference between those situations? And is there, a under extreme situations, is there some legitimacy to accommodating practice to not a lowest common denominator, but the highest common denominator in a situation where things are very limited? I've been impressed with the way uh, my fellow pastors, especially in the PCA, have been innovative about this. Um, <clears throat> I don't always agree with the way they're doing it, but I think their heart is right. And uh, they are trying their best to incorporate everything that ought to be done in communion uh, by these various means, um, whether it's drive up or curbside or, or uh, a service in the home. Um, and I've noticed also in the various discussion lists I'm on with these men that they're thinking about the supper in ways that they maybe haven't in the past. One of the things that's being revealed here, I believe, without being too critical, is the lack of biblical and theological reflection on the sacraments in our pastoral training, uh, especially in Reformed churches. It tends to be like one class in all your seminary training, and then it's mostly reduced to polemics, uh, defending infant baptism or dealing with, you know, the four various interpretations of, you know, pin the tail on the body of Christ, where is it? Um, and, and, and so a, a pastor goes out and doesn't really think much about it, but this is causing people to reflect on it more, and I think that's a good thing. And as a result of this, we might come out of it with a fuller, more uh, uh, more biblical appreciation of what's involved in the supper. So, Jeff, what are you doing with your, your local church to in this regard with the uh, with the supper? We're not. Uh, I'm. What I'm doing is. Uh, creating uh, what we're calling Sunday Common Prayer uh, liturgies, where everybody uh, in the family or in a small group actually goes through a liturgy of responsive liturgy and some singing. We record hymns and psalm chants, but we've decided to uh, basically fast from the Lord's Supper since we can't come together. We can't assemble as the local body of Christ uh, that's just been our decision. Yeah. Have you? Did you consider the possibility of 
having multiple smaller assemblies, but live action Eucharist. So you would have 10 different locations with some church leader presiding uh, where the people would uh, would gather. Is that Was that an option that you considered? And if, if so, why did you decide not to do that? It was an option, uh, at least some variant of that. But at the time, and probably still now today, most of my elders, and I have uh, some medical doctors too, were discouraging any kind of gatherings like that mm-hmm. unless they're families that live together in the same home. So we are basically following their, I think, wise advice in not doing that. And we're, we're afraid also that if we started doing that, then <laughs> those little sites would be magnets where people would gather uh, because they are starved for, com- for communion, not just communion with a big C, but just mm-hmm. with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we saw that happening early on with our little prayer groups where they started to swell. We're like, whoa, that, that's not good. Um, so it's just, it's those kinds of practical considerations that led us to just wait until we can assemble together. I was thinking about some of these subjects recently in the context of um, Daniel 9, where Daniel prays for the nation. And then he's heard at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now the evening sacrifice is presumably not being offered at that time as the temple is destroyed. But there seems to still be um, a sense that this sacrifice is operative on some level, in the heavenly temple at least. And I was wondering how we could maybe think about our situation according to the analogy of um, the destruction of the temple, a situation where there is exile, we're not able to participate in the ordinary mode of... um, entrance to God's presence. Does that mean we're cut off from the reality? Um, I don't think that's the case, but it does mean that we need to think about what exactly does communion represent. Um, And often I think our accounts of communion can become very narrowly focused upon the ritual without thinking enough about how that is either confirmed or not confirmed in practice. And then also thinking about the way in which when we are celebrating the liturgy, it is a sort of enacted prayer. And there are ways in which prayer itself can be um, can be connected with those liturgical elements. So for instance, um, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, or let my prayer come before you as incense and lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. There is an analogy between prayer and the sacrificial process of the liturgy. And then on the other hand, when we're celebrating the liturgy, the liturgy is a sort of, it is a prayer being enacted as a community in a particular ritual. And thinking about it from that perspective, I wonder whether we are at risk of um, focusing on the ritual to the extent, to such an extent that we miss the dimension of the prayer that's involved. And are we cut off from God's throne? No, and we can still come towards God's throne. The ritual is limited in how we can practice it, but according to the analogy of the people cut off from the temple there's still access there. 
Um, it just takes a different form. And we need to consider what exactly the sacrifice, that being cut off with the temple's destruction, what that cut people off from. Oh, I was just going to say, just a quick detail to further that thought, Alistair. You have Daniel 9 in mind, do you, the time of the evening sacrifice? Yep. So, I mean, in the very next um, chapter, we have Daniel again, and he's mourning uh, and fasting for three weeks. And those three weeks exactly straddle the Passover. They go from the fourth day of the first month through to the 24th day of, of the first month. And that doesn't seem to be coincidence. A 10 day period is important for Daniel in the very first chapter. Um, he, he goes on a particular uh, diet for, for a time of 10 days of testing. And I wonder if there could be something um, instructive about that, that the normal Passover is uh, almost substituted for with this extended fast on Daniel's behalf. Yeah, I think I would go back to uh, Alistair's comments earlier to the uh, while trying to trying to think through the the uh, particular situation that we're in and the complications, the extraordinary character of it. You can't do Eucharistic theology by exception, and so I'd be hesitant to to conclude from this that the ritual gathering and the actions of the supper in the presence, the body in the presence of the body, which is the the principle that 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 should be somehow diminished or minimized. I don't, I'm not saying Alistair was saying that, but I think we're in danger when we're when we're trying to think through this of uh, the exception becoming becoming a kind of quasi norm uh, and rethinking the rethinking the the uh, norm of the supper uh, in the light of this. Having said that, I think there's something to what, what Alistair's saying, and I, I thought too of uh, another biblical analogy that might be of some use is the uh, original Passover um, Passover as a as a, an ongoing feast in Israel was a was a temple event the men at least were required to be at uh, at the temple for or at the sanctuary for the passover feast uh, but in the original passover the israelites were confined to their homes they didn't go out because the angel of death was abroad uh, they weren't uh, necessarily gathered as family units they were gathered as family units with neighbors there it was uh, as Exodus says if the if the uh, the lamb is too large for a single family to eat, then you invite those who are nearest to you to to share that. But you have this decentralized Passover celebration that's the first Passover uh, that is still taken as a uh, as a as a as the festival of Passover, the original one. Now that's not again that's not the norm, but that was a uh, I, I've wondered if that's um, gives us some insight into an extraordinary time. And I want to go back to Jeff's comments. Most of the Everything you said about the not having a decentralized supper had to do with the practicalities of of the current situation. Did you all have a principled reason not to do that, other than the the practicalities? You don't want to you don't want the gathering to get too large. You don't want you don't want ten people. But is it, do you have a, a a principled objection to that kind of decentralized practice in again in a kind of emergency situation? Well, yes. Um, there's a couple things I'd say, and I, what I've told my people, and that is what's already been said about 1 Corinthians 11. Um, it's this being togetherness of the celebration that is important. Um, and I don't think that's something that technology can overcome. Technology offers this illusory notion that we can 
go beyond our embodied spatial limitations. And um, I think if if we accept that, we're in danger of uh, transforming the Eucharist. Or, or let me put it this way, uh, minimizing or being reductionistic about it. And this is the second thing I'd say. One of the problems, I think, in uh, pastoral training about uh, the Eucharist is our focus on the elements, um, and everything is about the elements. And it seems like what's happening today, and again, I applaud the, the innovation of these pastors, but we're giving people the impression that as long as you get the bread in your mouth and the wine or juice mm-hmm. uh, in your mouth, that somehow that's the only thing that matters. Um, now, I don't think that anybody would actually say that, but there is a danger that it's only about, uh, you know, ingesting these elements. Uh, and we, we forget about the ritual and everything that goes along mm-hmm. with or ought to go along with the supper. That's another reason why we're not doing it. Yeah. I agree with you about the virtual communion, but I was the scenario I was thinking of was not a virtual communion, but the church uh, in scattered units Again, an, uh, apart from the current situation, do you have a principled objection to 25 people gathering together as part of a larger gathering throughout throughout the city rather than all gathering in one location uh, and having communion mm-hmm. in those smaller uh, – that's not a virtual communion, but that is that is a decentralized communion. Is that, does that come under the same uh, – do you have the same objections to that? Yeah, I think I do. Um, and the other – I'd add something to the critique, and that is it almost seems like we're coming close to kind of a private communion or a private mass there where it's mostly just going to be families. Um, and I, I, I guess what, I, what I've told my people is just in terms of Christian formation and discipleship, I'm not sure that moves us in a direction that's uh, toward maturity. I've encouraged them uh, to just think of our present situation as an affliction. And, you know, when we have to patiently endure under it, uh, and it makes us long even more from the time when we can actually gather together, assemble as the church, and sit around the table as the local body of Christ. Um, and that's my thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to demonize others who've done that. So, for example, here's another example. Uh, the LCMS pastors in uh, in St. Louis, a number of them, are doing this. They are having multiple actual Eucharistic services throughout the week, some 10, 20 of them, where they're inviting families to come, uh, mostly families, to come to the church, and the pastor presides, and they do a Eucharistic liturgy, uh, shortened, abbreviated, Mm -hmm. um, and then they clean everything up, uh, and then the next family comes in and they do it. Uh, That, again, uh, smacks of just getting the elements in people's mouths, uh, and and seems like it's like a private communion. I don't know how that really encourages uh, the notion that we are united as a body. It seems like this is something special, uh, the pastor being a chaplain to the various families and giving them their communion. Um, that too, um, again, I, I, I commend it. I mean, it's a lot of work for these pastors to do that, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I just don't know if that 
is communicating what we want to communicate about the supper. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the practice of the early church, I wonder whether um, the meeting from house to house to celebrate the supper, it doesn't seem to have been a gathered um, central location activity. It seems to have been quite dispersed throughout the city. And over time, that developed into a more centralized celebration. But I wonder whether at times like this, where we're restricted to more local um, immediate neighborhood gatherings, perhaps, or even in some cases, people's own homes, whether it's legitimate to go back to that earlier stage of the church's development without denying the importance of what it means to get together. I mean, in, in part, it depends how it, what perspective you're looking at it from, whether you're thinking in terms of, um, well, if we really value community, then we'll obviously recognize that there's no substitute for people all being in the same place, eating a shared meal and or celebrating the supper as a shared meal. But on the other hand, under our current circumstances, there are many people who are thinking about it from that vantage point and saying, we really want to join together. What's the greatest and most intense way that we can join together under these circumstances? And many people, as they're asking those questions, are coming up with these sorts of alternative ways of celebrating communion. So I wonder whether mm -hmm. there's a way beyond just that framing um, where we can give a more principled um, answer to these questions. Because I think often that's where it comes down to what vantage point we're coming at the problem from. It's like the question of, is it legitimate to smoke when you're praying or is it legitimate to pray when you're smoking? Um, it's not exactly the most helpful way of framing it if you want to get at a principial answer. Yeah, do you, uh, Alistair, are you aware of churches that are doing what, what you're saying, that they have more like the Acts 2, Acts 4 situation where they're having communion in homes? And is that is that families doing that separately? Are they doing it with other members of the church? Are they doing it under the with the approval of the pastors? Is there still some sense of they're doing this as part of a local congregation? I've seen and heard of a number of different approaches. So some celebrating with neighbors, um, others who celebrate in their own home on a conference call with other people in the church celebrating at the same time. So everyone is eating bread and drinking wine as part of a shared celebration over uh, a Zoom call or something. And mm -hmm. simply in terms of regular meals, I've had several regular meals in the last week or so over a Zoom conference call or a Skype call with family. Mm -hmm. And it's been a way of, mm -hmm. to the extent that we can, being together. Yeah. yeah. Speaking for myself, the, the idea of a dispersed house-to-house -house communion with actual live eating together, that seems to conform to the biblical pattern. The, the virtual communion doesn't um, because you don't, it does seem like coming together in some form. I mean, you, you never have the whole congregation together uh, or rarely have the whole congregation together for Eucharist anyway. Some people are missing. And in extraordinary circumstances, it seems like a church could give permission to smaller groups. The leaders of the church could disperse and have communion services uh, at various places around the city. I understand the practical reasons why, you, Jeff, you, you all didn't decided not to do that, and that would have to be weighed in. But as a principal matter, that kind of decentralization doesn't seem to 
that seems to be um, consistent with the at least the early church practice. Uh, let me turn to a larger question about just about worship in general, liturgy, liturgy in general in the current circumstances. Uh, as as you all know, there are churches that have become rather famous or notorious for continuing to meet in defiance of orders to shut down, continuing to meet with full gatherings of the church. Uh, there are churches that have continued to meet in uh, different forms that uh, uh, they're, you know, drive-in churches and things like that. And um, I heard this weekend that there were, uh, in some places, there were there was an order given on Easter morning uh, ordering churches not to have drive-in services and that people would be fined or dispersed if they had a drive-in service. So how should we think about gathering at all during this this time? A part of this is going to uh, be a question of how uh, uh, how dangerous we think the uh, and and contagious we think the virus is, and we, if we can leave that question to the side. But how should we think about gathering at all, apart from the communion service? Uh, and if we think that uh, we should conform to uh, local regulations about about the size of gatherings, what are the best alternatives? And then also, when when if ever do we decide we're going to defy? local bans? Should the church uh, accept its status, which is implicitly given now, should the church just uh, accept its status as a non-essential service until they say we're allowed to meet again? Or is there some point where we say we don't conform to that, to those uh, requirements? I threw out, I don't know, five or six questions in that. So you pick the one that you like best. (laughs) On the subject of gathering together, I think we should begin by recognizing what is different from gathering, for instance, online than gathering in person. And that's not a question that enough thought gets given to. I mean, people recognize that there's some difference, but what exactly the difference might be is not always carefully spelled out. And I think there's something about the body as the objectivity of the self that's very important. Um, In our body, we are placed at the disposal of of other people, to their gaze, to their proximity. There's something about the body that makes us accessible to other people. And when you're merely online or connecting virtually, there's a sense at which you can reserve yourself from being present to people in that deeper way. And so when we gather together at the as the church, the fact that our bodies are physically present matters a great deal. It's not just the practicality of getting to a place where we can hear a message and we can do that just as well on our computers. It actually matters that we are physically there. And the way that the church has tried to emphasize the importance of the body within the liturgy is in part to accentuate the importance of the body, that we kneel, that we... um greet each other physically, um, that we participate physically in bread and wine, that our bodies are physically washed in baptism. All of these things matter because, first of all, our bodies are an important part of us. They're the place where we feel the givenness and the soil of the self, as it were, the connection between the self as interiority and the self as exteriority, the connection between the world outside and the I within meet they meet in the body and i wonder whether when we're meeting online we end up getting restricted to our eyes and our ears and those are just a small part of the self 
And so if we're approaching this question, I think we should first of all recognize what is being lost when we're just gathering online and why people feel a hunger for meeting in person. Because that is the type of beings that we are, that God created us to be. And the physicality of the liturgy is connecting with the type of persons that God created us as, which is something that can often get lost in many evangelical approaches to worship, I fear. Alistair, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and there's two things I'd say about that. One is, I think I would encourage pastors to have the people, even in their homes, if it's live streamed or, or you're listening to an MP3 file, to actually, uh, with one another, uh, kneel, stand, speak, um, look at one another. I've, I've noticed, <laughs> I've noticed in, um, some Facebook, uh, pictures of people worshiping that you have the family all sprawled out on the couch <laughs> with uh, blankets, some of the kids looking at their iPhones while the service is being live streamed. That's not really helpful. Get the people at least to participate. Uh, and that's the first. And the second thing is, I wonder too, if there's not some analogy between writing and uh, the technology uh, of uh, virtual communication. Paul writes to his congregations, but in Romans 1, he, he surely places a premium on the physical, his physical presence. He says, you know, I'm praying for you, I'm with you in spirit, uh, but I long to see you, Romans 1.11, that I may impart some spiritual, capital S, some gift of the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, been prevented thus far, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. But Paul there seems to indicate that there's some uh, elevated uh, uh, gift and response going on with his physical presence that's not there with his writing. Um, and I think this, hopefully this is going to be something that's instilled in us through this crisis that although it's a great stopgap method, virtual uh, worship, virtual communication, it, it nothing can replace the bodily presence uh, of people assembled together on the Lord's Just day. a note on Paul's writing. Paul's writing is not the same as just sending an email. When he wrote a letter, it was a physical thing, and he would send it with a physical minister yes. of a church or um, deacon yes. or something like that to another congregation, and through that create personal bonds across the whole of the early church. And they would send it on in turn to other churches and with it, they'll be sending their example. And so it was creating a very physical um, community and network of witnesses. And he would collect also a collection for the saints in Jerusalem or something like that. So it's a very physical act of letter sending, um, very different from what we think of. Yes, and I agree with that. And yet at the same time, he still wanted to be face-to-face -face mm -hmm. with them uh, for something even better. Uh, and this is where, too, uh, I think pastors are doing a pretty good job of this. So uh, if I visit someone, uh, one of our shut-ins, 
I'll have a face-to-face, usually outside the door. Uh, they'll be standing inside the door. I'm standing outside the door, but I'll talk and pray with them. Uh, or uh, someone uh, someone will drive up and we'll have a conversation. I, I, I don't think we should underestimate those kinds of personal encounters and think somehow that, as you said, Alistair, email or Zoom conferences uh, can take their place. Mm-hmm. A particular essay that uh, I found really helpful on these issues, uh, Brad East at uh, Mere, uh, Mere Orthodoxy uh, on April 2nd had an essay called Sacraments, Technology, and Streaming Worship in a Pandemic. Uh, and uh, Dr. East talks about the significance of touch and uh, a, an assembly of bodily beings is an assembly in which there is the potential for touch and then connects that with the tangibility of the sun in the incarnation and uh, how, you know, this, this is the, this is the mode by which God comes near to us in a tangible body. So I, I agree completely, Jeff, that the, the, the physical presence is, uh, uh, is it's a different, it's a, just a different mode of presence. Yeah. When we're talking about emails and letters and so forth, I don't, I don't know as much about this as I should historically, but the act of reading and reading a letter may have been something very different to what we think about in terms of people sitting in their homes reading a book. A letter, when it arrived, may well have been read out the first time it was read communally with a gathered church there. I, don't, I suspect literary, uh, literacy rates were higher than is often made out, but I don't think it's, it's guaranteed that everyone in a um, congregation would, would be able to read it. And so um, the, sort of talking about sending an email today and sending a letter in uh, old ancient times, that mm-hmm. may well be some very different things. When a letter came in to uh, the Bennett family in Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice, everyone sat around listening to the letter being read. So yeah, exactly. Perhaps one of the things I've missed most about not being able to gather together as the church and meeting virtually is song. Um, you can't sing together virtually uh, just because of lag and connection. And it has made clear to me just how much and how important a part of the life of the church song is, the expression of communal joy. And that is also a very bodily thing that we don't maybe give enough thought to song as bodily. But the union of a church is very often found in feeling a communal song, the voice of many people raised together in unison, and the desire and the joy and the emotions that are expressed as we join together in that act. Yeah, and you, you can't, uh, you can't uh, replicate that singing solo. Uh, I realized this a number of years ago when I used to stand by uh, Theopolis board member Roy Atwood during psalm sings out in Idaho. And I'd realize that Roy, who has a very uh, resonant bass voice, Roy's voice was actually kind of going through, vibrating my body and making my singing better. So there's a, there's a, a real physical kind of communion that takes place when you're singing together that you just can't replicate uh, singly. I, I want to go back to a question. One of the questions I raised uh, at the beginning of this phase of our discussion about um, the uh, where if at all in this is a line where we say the church must obey God rather than man and we must gather for worship. Are we 
should we be content being sub- subjected to public authorities on this uh, indefinitely until they say, give us the all clear? If that's not the case, then what, what would be the trigger for saying we're going we're gonna to go back to meeting regardless of what the, what the public health authorities are saying? Where's the role at all for civil disobedience on these matters? Let me let me start my answering my own question with just a principal thing. This doesn't answer the actual question, but setting out a couple of couple of guidelines. One is uh, Jeff has pointed this out uh, in uh, over many years, but uh, the worship of the church is not just worship for the sake of the community that's gathered. We've put a lot of emphasis on that, and rightly so. But we gather for worship for the sake of the world. Uh, we offer prayers on behalf of kings and all men. We sing psalms that talk about the Lord coming in judgment to bring justice to the earth. Uh, we sing Psalm 2 about Jesus, who is the exalted king, who's going to dash the nations with a, with a rod of iron. So there's, And we sing, uh, we sing and pray for God to have mercy on the world. So we're, we're not just gathering for the sake of the community of believers, but we're, we're gathering and doing the liturgy, uh, gathering before the face of God on behalf of the world. And that, I believe, is an essential service for the good of the world. Uh, and without that, uh, the world will not live under the blessing of God. So I'm not saying that that can't take place to take Alistair's point about uh, uh, Daniel and praying toward the ruined temple. You're still offering prayers. Those prayers are still being heard. You're gathering together virtually and you're still speaking prayers to God. And that's on behalf of the world. That's still performing at least part of that essential service. But if the physical gathering of believers is an essential part of the liturgy, uh, then that's an essential part of the essential service that the church performs. So th- those are the those are the things that lead me to ask the question about civil disobedience. I don't accept the uh, the again implied claim that church gatherings are unessential to the to the health of to the public health of our communities and nation. You are right to link this question with uh, the role of the church in the community, in the culture, in a nation. Um, and I think it's precisely that link which is often missing in discussions about this. Um, there's a danger, again, another danger, that all of us appreciate so much the uh, the virtual worship, the virtual prayers, um, the virtual communication, and we we begin to think somehow, well, it's all about me. It's what I need, and I need this badly. I'm a needy person. I'm alone, uh, all of which is true and accurate and, and right, but it's not just about us. It's also about uh, the world, which is why, at least during this time when you have uh, even small groups meeting together for prayer, uh, it, we should be directing our prayers uh, to our culture at large, to our leaders, to uh, God's uh, to, to for God to be gracious, for God to bring His judgment, whatever. But it's not just about us. And I fear that you know everything being done to cater to the needs of congregational members. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with that, may end up, you know, being, we just being self-absorbed uh, or, or church-absorbed 
uh, and almost slip into a two kingdoms mentality without even realizing it. If I were answering that question, I'd, I think I'd step back first and think about um, whether these, whether the regulations are being applied equitably. Um, so first of all, what are um, the principles being applied to other institutions? Um, when the government itself is having its meetings via Zoom, um, it seems that they certainly, even in their most essential acts, take that distancing very seriously. And so for the church to see that that lack of distancing is that they're being treated unjustly in being required to distance because their work is essential. The government's work is also essential, but they're observing the distancing very strictly. Um, so first of all, it seems to be a genuine concern for the physical well-being. And then theologically, I think there's the fact that God teaches that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so a form of worship that's driven by some imperative of worship that's not really considering the well-being of human beings, that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, that would seem to fall short of true worship too. And so on that front, I think it is not appropriate for the church to gather together if it is jeopardizing um, human life on the sort of scale that we might be jeopardizing at the moment. So as long as the government regulations are applied equitably across institutions, that it's not singling out the church, um, as long as it's something that is a genuine threat that um, should be seen as a concern for the church's own um, regard for life and the importance of honouring God's desire for life to be valued and mercy to be valued over sacrifice, then I think we're legitimised in actually going with the regulations. If it were to come to a point where there was a shift and the church were being singled out as unessential um, and other groups of a very similar type were being permitted, then we'd have time for reassessment, I think. Yeah. If, if we're not careful, we can sort of use the term essential so that it ends up doing a bit too much work in our arguments, I think. It may, on the one hand, seem fine to say food is essential so a supermarket can open but a hairdresser's next door can't or something. But if I'm a hairdresser and that's my shop and that's the livelihood which I use to support my family, then that's essential as, as well. And so sort of sometimes I think the argument has to be phrased carefully. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a great point and great points from both of you. I guess this also this would also get into the question that we're not going to try to address since we don't have any capacity to do so with the threat that's uh, the degree of the threat and who who actually is threatened by this virus. I mean, I, I guess the, the the only point I would make again uh, back to you, Alistair, I think that's a great point about the government uh, also complying with this. It does seem that there are inequities in the way that this is applied. That uh, there are. Uh, it's not clear to me why a uh, why a gathering uh, in the parking lot of a church where people remain in their cars, but at least are having some sense of congregating, uh, why that would be considered a a threat to uh, public safety and um, the uh, equally large gathering of people at a uh, at a Walmart uh, who don't stay in their cars but go into the store, why that's 
uh, why that's uh, not considered a threat to public safety. So leave that to the side. I wanted to, in the last few minutes of this of this episode, let's talk about the pastoral dimension of this. And I guess I, I want to focus particularly, ask, uh, at least get Jeff's thoughts initially, because he's the one uh, working pastor in our group. And tell me how you've thought about uh, your responsibilities for pastoral care, apart from liturgical leadership, but your responsibilities for pastoral care. How have you been carrying those out? And how have your elders been assisting you in doing that during the, during this pandemic? Great question. Um, you know, I have to admit that it's confusing and it's often frustrating um, knowing what to do and how to do it. Um, for example, we do have one member, um, Dick Cohn, who's uh, like 87 years old and who has been diagnosed and is in the hospital with the coronavirus. Um, he seems to be doing okay. He's not on a ventilator, which is a good thing. Um, but the, the pastoral dilemma for me is I can't visit him. Uh, and I don't, I don't understand why I'm forbidden from visiting him other than of course, you know, I'm going to be a, maybe a transmitter or something like that. But I, I find that really troubling in the hospital system right now in the healthcare system that pastors aren't able to visit their people when they're sick and any kind of sickness. If you're in a hospital, nobody's allowed in except for uh, you and maybe one person. I've got people that are in a hospital right now, their families can't even visit them. Uh, so it presents a challenge. So I can, I can write notes. I can send texts. And as I said earlier, uh, for the shut-ins that have, uh, you know, doors, I can go and meet with them and talk with them through the door. And I've, I've done that. Uh, our elders have set up Zoom meetings for their, their parish groups. We have uh, six or seven parishes with elders over each one. And they set up Zoom meetings and find out what people need. We also uh, had a, a drive-through church, as we called it, but it's not what you think. It was on a Sunday evening where people drove up to the church and stayed in their cars. And both the pastors, Pastor Scogan and I, um, would talk with them and pray with them. And they would drop off uh, goods for people in need and for our food pantry. And so we collected a huge amount of, of um, supplies and we were able to talk with people and we're going to do that again this week. We did that a couple weeks ago. They also dropped off tithe checks and they dropped off uh, checks to the Deacons Fund who are helping people who have special needs and are out of work. That's That's been helpful. Um, and I don't, I don't think my deacons came up with that. I didn't even come up with that. So I appreciate mm -hmm. people being innovated about those things. It's just all those things together, um, trying trying our best to just keep contact with people, calling people that are single mainly uh, on the phone and talking with them, uh, things like that. One of the concerns at this time, I think, particularly for many pastors, will be people on the periphery of the church, many of whom, as they get into the habit of not attending the church on a regular basis, that they will drop out. And I've already seen um, in our congregation certain people who seem to be drifting off because either they can't connect or they just don't feel the need to join with everyone else when we gather together. Those people who have joined together 
in some ways they're closer together than they ever have been. Um, but there is definitely real danger of people drifting away at this point. Jeff, have you found uh, op- found ways to? Um, are you are you vi- physically visiting people in your church? Is that something that you're able to do with at least some of the members? while keeping your safe distance from them. Um, yeah, like I said, the shut-ins, um, yeah. but really not anybody else, honestly. Um, and for prudential reasons, mainly, um, I don't, I don't feel it's appropriate for me to go in visit a family at this point, uh, unless there's really a, a need. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've expressed, uh, personally and individually to almost everybody in the congregation, if you would like me to visit, I'm available. Please either call me, text me. I can come by in person. We can maintain our distance. Um, oh, I should say I've visited a couple families who've had babies recently mm-hmm. uh, and just we kept our distance, uh, but uh, they're questioning when to baptize. And so we talked about that. Uh, it can be done. Uh, but there are also a lot of people in the congregation who are quite frightened of, of physical contact right now, yeah. either because they're vulnerable or because they've just been, you know, scared by uh, everything that's going on. Yeah. And, and uh, how, have you, how have you gone about trying to uh, cultivate continuing body life apart from your own involvement? To, so people, people are staying in touch, staying connected, serving one another insofar as they can. Virtually. Uh, so we have a private secret Facebook group with members only, and there's a lot of activity on that. Um, and that seems to be helpful in connecting people. I notice people are connected in other ways outside of that group. Um, I mean, praise God for this kind of technology. I mean, what did people do in times of pandemic before we had these ways of connecting? So we can we can criticize this way of connecting all we want, but wow, it serves a purpose and it certainly helps a lot of people. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.